0: Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, we are back now with the Good Life Podcast, and I am pleased today to interview. Uh, Dr. Brandon Meeks. Brandon is an author. He's written uh, a couple of really good books. One is called God, the Universe, and Everything Else, which uh, I believe is his first published book, at least that I know of. And then one also is called The Foolishness of God, Reclaiming Preaching in the Anglican Tradition. So... Don't let that title throw you, though, because that book on preaching, I know, is one of the best that I've read on preaching uh, across denominations, and there are men from many denominations uh, of the Protestant stripe who all appreciate the book. Uh, He is also uh, an Anglican theologian in residence at his parish in Arkansas. And so he writes at a few different websites, and we'll talk about that. But Brandon, we're very glad to have you with us today.
1: Well, thank you, Matt. It's great to be on.
0: So we'll just start with you know your background. So I know you have an interesting background that's similar to, to some of the people, at least, who, who are listening. So, so tell us a little bit about where you started and how you arrived, where you are now as an Anglican.
1: Uh, Well, uh, I was born at a very young age in the Delta region of South Arkansas. (laughs) Now, this surprises a lot of people uh, because when they hear me talk for the first time, they naturally assume that I'm from somewhere in New England. But I am, in fact, not. I was raised in a nominally Christian home until I was about 11, 10 church uh, with any regularity or at all, as I recall. And then some friends from school invited me to go to church with them. And my grandmother wasn't going to have that. She decided that she'd been out of church for too long. So she just took me herself. And I reckon she probably has not missed more than 10 Sundays since then. And that was well over Uh, 25 years ago, we started out at a missionary Baptist church. Now, for those not from uh, the deep south, uh, missionary Baptists are uh, what we call the Baptist bride people. Uh, They're the kind that that think that uh, other Christians may make it to heaven, but on these off chance that they do, they'll have to wait tables at the marriage supper of the Lamb and do all the dishes afterwards or whatever. And, but we stayed there until that pastor left, um, and then we left because we'd heard good things about a fundamentalist free will Baptist church uh, in our area, and my folks have been there ever since, and for those unfamiliar with that, free will Baptists are conscientiously Arminian, Armenian to the degree that they named their denomination after it. It's on the letterhead. They put it in bold letters on the sign, Free Will Baptist, but um, it was not a bad experience. Uh, Good people who loved the Lord and loved us, uh, so I have have nothing bad to say about them. About the same time, I started learning to play the piano, and I showed some talent for it, so I, I found myself... Uh, playing for local gospel groups, and this eventually landed me at an independent Baptist church where I remained for a number of years. At that same time, I also started preaching. That's all around the age of 14. And being so young, this was something of a novelty. Uh, So I got the chance to preach a lot of meetings of what we called revivals, uh, summer camps, Uh, youth crusades, um, any number of things. So in addition to playing music, I was a tent revivalist uh, and a camp meeting preacher uh, until as recent as a decade ago or so. And when I mean, when I say tent meeting, I mean the pew jumping, aisle running kind. We were as wild as a bunch of peach orchard boars. So that's, um, that's my background in a nutshell.
0: So you you've covered a lot of territory certainly among the Baptists but you did not remain Baptist so so there there were there were several steps then because now you are obviously Anglican so how does a Baptist uh a free will or independent Baptist become Anglican at least how did you do that <laughs>
1: Uh I'll try to give you a a short answer if I can. Uh, After graduating high school, I went off to a fundamentalist Bible college in North Carolina. uh, And while there, through absolutely no fault of my own, I fooled around and fell face first into Calvinism. We had a new theology professor fresh out of seminary, and he assigned some books for reading uh, that eventually got him in trouble. Uh, by some high octane uh, Calvinist. And I just fell in love with it. It was truth that resonated with me that I had not uh, heard before. And it ignited something of a passion both for God and His Word uh, that was lacking up until that time. And I was always a middling student in school, but this kind of kickstarted me into uh, a pursuit of more serious theological inquiry. So after leaving there I went on to Tennessee Temple University uh, to pursue graduate studies and from there I moved to Scotland to study with John Webster and I Howard Marshall at the University of Aberdeen. I was as green as a spring pine. I had no idea how influential these men were uh, they moved in a completely different orbit for me, might as well have been from a different universe than I came from. I still don't even know how I heard of the University of Aberdeen. But when I did, I wrote a rather naive letter to John Webster that basically said something like, I hear y'all have a pretty good theology program over yonder, and as it happens, I also like theology. Reckon I could come study with you. <laughs> <laughs> and the hilarious providence of God made it so that he answered, "Yes, come on." So while I was there, I started attending a congregation of the of the Church of Scotland, uh, and I was becoming more and more reformed and appreciative of higher types of liturgy. And while all this was happening overseas, uh, back home, the folks over at Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church were making a big noise. Um, and a lot of controversy broke out over that, and that church was less than an hour from my hometown, so whenever I was stateside, I attended some of the meetings that were causing such a furor. Uh, It became clear to me that some of the things that I liked about Reformed theology and the Reformed tradition in Scotland would go over like a lead balloon here in the States, and I'm not—I don't even remember now how exactly it happened, uh, but I discovered Anglicanism. I think through some friends uh, who were studying there with me, um, and I immediately found an ecclesial home. Um, <clears throat> now you'll—you'll you'll probably appreciate this. Uh, I've often said that Daryl Hart and Peter Lighthart made me an Anglican uh, because of their work on liturgy and the sacraments, and particularly. Uh, Dr. Lighthart's emphasis on catholicity and reading the scriptures in a holistic manner. So I was officially confirmed in the Anglican communion in 2016 after a rather circuitous journey.
0: Okay. So so then so, so you are Anglican, you have been for a while and you know from there, you know, you are now serving your, your your, parish, so what are things that you learned as uh, a, a fundamentalist, independent Baptist that you have retained today? B- because, you know, of course, many people attack their upbringing w- once they leave one tradition. They have nothing but vitriol for what they left, and, and in some cases, you know, th- th- there's a need to, to to make a clear point about why I left because you know they're they're ordaining, uh, lesbian. What th- they 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 don't want that, and that's good. But what are what are good things though that you learned about um, the Lord from your previous tradition?
1: That's an excellent question. Uh, Before I answer it, let me say that uh, the fundamental Baptist from which I sprang, uh, the women didn't even wear britches, and the men didn't wear short pants. So there was little worry about ordaining homosexuals or or anything of that nature. Um, But it is a great question, and one which I wish people who have had similar experiences Uh, As I have, would consider uh, the churches of my youth taught me the Bible. And I cannot underscore that enough, and I could not be more thankful about that. Uh, They really did love and believe the Bible. Now, they they weren't much on theology, but they knew the content of the Bible, they knew the stories of Scripture. Uh, So I learned those stories well and committed tons of the Bible to memory um so much that I could probably say I haven't actively memorized a lot of scripture in years simply because I haven't needed to it took I've also retained um, something of the evangelistic impulse that was so prevalent in those revivalist traditions uh, they believed that the gospel was such good news that everybody needed to hear it and twice on Sundays and my Approach might be a little different, but the emphasis remains. And then, thirdly, would probably be that bit about preaching. Uh, Preaching was everything uh, in my youth, at least three sermons a week, not including revivals and chapel services and other meetings. And even though the preaching wasn't the best, it was always fervent, it was always challenging, and it was always personal, sometimes too personal, in your face. But on the whole, I think these are good things, gifts of God, and I'm thankful for them.
0: So then, how did you, so with your tradition now, and you, you've talked about the, the fact that you have retained uh, an emphasis on evangelism, a regular criticism of those who believe in Calvinistic belief of sovereign grace they're labeled as being non-evangelistic and of course historically that can be refuted but in your tradition now how do you what does evangelism look like as an a liturgical anglican versus as an independent baptist
1: I I would say that uh, evangelism looks fairly similar uh, to probably uh, the way it looks in in your own tradition. Uh, Central to it all is the uh, worship of the church on the Lord's Day, and we are uh, convinced that something uh, real is taking place. Uh, by the ascent of the saints of God into the heavenlies where we're meeting with God. And that affects a real change, a warfare, as it were, uh, in this world. And that becomes uh, the locus and the motivating force that we close every liturgy with a great commission, as it were. We are blessed in the triune name and sent forth to love and serve one another uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, for me, uh, this means being a good neighbor, actually knowing who my neighbors are, finding different ways to uh, serve them, uh, love them, uh, just to show um, what Christianity looks like in shoe leather. Uh, But I'm also not opposed to just striking up a conversation. I've done this many times uh, on airplanes uh, um, or in airports or places like that where you have a few minutes and you get to talking to someone about their life story. Does it take long? They share problems and that gives you an opportunity to talk to them about the God of all comfort, um, to give them uh, a gospel track. I, I was a Baptist long enough that I still carry some sort of literature with me in my pocket. Most of the time, even if it's only the information to a local church where they could find uh, some help. I, I still don't believe there is anything better than one person talking to another person about the things of God.
0: Amen, amen. That that is something that I, I will say in some Reformed and liturgical traditions that is lost. The the impetus that that, that is there in many. Strong Baptist churches, so that then you know would would also tie in to when you're talking about loving your neighbor. And I remember a while back I read uh, Roger Scruton, the late Roger Scruton, philosopher in the United Kingdom, talked about one of the reasons he appreciated the Church of England was because she was a church who loved her region who wanted to be faithful a faithful witness where she was and that goes not just for the nation but going all the way down to the p- local parish itself she you know, the, the church has a ministry there so when you talk about putting shoe leather to the, the gospel that also is important and that's thankfully not something that is only held by the church of england but a vision for the local community is a good thing that sadly many churches uh, can neglect uh, at times as well
1: yeah um the mission field always starts right across the street uh, that's that's the first duty. Love the person closest to you. Your family first, then your neighbors, and then you can take it uh, from there. I wouldn't give you a wooden nickel for a guy who's raising money on the for the mission field who wouldn't share the gospel with the fellow across the street.
0: That's right. Amen. Well, you have started a podcast recently, and uh, I will have a link to your podcast. In our notes uh, for for this podcast but what is the name of your podcast uh, and, and so tell us a little bit about that and and really what you what you want to emphasize
1: <clears throat> well I decided to call it at the uh, insistence of a friend old-time religion uh, f- for a couple of reasons one is the tradition from which I came, this was a common phrase that you heard all of the time. We need to get back to the old time religion. And usually what that meant was sometime around 1973, because that's when their pastor uh, took over the congregation. So that's all they knew about the history of the church. But since I am now in one of the uh, ancient traditions that, that we believe can trace our lineage back to Christ and his apostles, um, I wanted to kind of take that and uh, build on it, but turn it on its head and show the truths of the Christian faith that are the bedrock of the real old time uh, religion. So I've started uh, a series basically just going through uh, the Apostles' Creed. Well, basically... Um, that's what I'm going to do. I, the, the, these first few episodes have been introductory material. And like any uh, former Baptist preacher, uh, I have a long introduction.
0: Yes. Well, that's that's quite all right. But I can say for our listeners, your podcast are 10 minutes uh, approximately. So it's not something super lengthy. And, and you are breaking it down well so you mentioned the creeds as a generation of people in the american church who by and large are have not been raised around creeds what are the when we say the creeds what are we generally talking about or when when, when you hear a minister say that what does he mean
1: Uh, For those of us who live in the West, the creeds usually refer to the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, and sometimes the so-called Athanasian Creed is thrown in for good measure, and I say so-called because there's considerable debate as to whether or not uh, Athanasius had anything to do with the actual production of it. So those, those are what we usually mean by the creeds. All
0: right. Why do we have creeds when we already have the Bible? If we have the Bible, what is the need for something in addition to what Scripture already teaches?
1: Uh, the creeds derive from uh, what we call the regular fidei or the rule of faith. And the rule of faith is that central body of non-negotiable doctrine that's essential to the Christian faith. Uh, It's called the rule because it regulates the way that we read the whole of Scripture. Uh, Difficult passages are interpreted in light of clearer ones, and essential doctrines are prioritized over peripheral issues. For instance, uh, the biblical statements, Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, well, these are both clearer and more important than whatever it was that caused St. Michael the archangel to wrestle the devil over the body of Moses. The rule of faith is effectively a canon within the canon of Scripture. For instance, the rule of faith requires a Trinitarian reading of the whole of Scripture and a particular emphasis on the personal work of Christ um, that worked for his people, and this is true throughout both Testaments. This is the way the apostles taught us to read, and they instructed us to pass down the faith uh, which we have received as a sacred deposit. And the creeds are simply a short summary of the living heart of Christianity.
0: If, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, it is a good and righteous thing that we attribute and, and, and hold uh, value more highly the fact that as paul says in first corinthians 15 christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures it is it's permissible to about, to hold that in great esteem uh, and even valuing it in a, in a higher way than we value the verse that says, at par bar westward, forth the causeway into it par bar.
1: Uh, yeah, a- absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, St. Paul does that himself in the very passage that you mentioned. He said that these things are of first importance. Well, the implication is that there are other things that while they're important, they are of lesser importance uh, than the central truths of the death, burial, and resurrection uh, of Jesus. Now, there are more truths than that, and there are more important truths uh, than some of the others, uh, but that is the beating heart of the faith
0: right so it's and and it's not even that we are denying the inspiration of any portion of god's word when we do this which is often what creedal christianity is accused of because they say that that, that you are you're you're taking out portions of scripture and you're adding to scripture but actually it is a prioritization of scripture in that we're taking what is given to us about our creator about his work in his world you know those things teach us so so we are in great need of hearing and of reciting and receiving that yes on a consistent basis. So uh, in, in your church, uh, you, you all recite, I'm guessing y'all follow the, uh, y- y'all worship from the Book of Common Prayer. That's right? right. All right. And you, so you recite the Apostles' Creed, uh, and, and we recite the Apostles' Creed as well. What about for the person who says, why do you recite the creeds every week? because don't you actually lessen their importance if you recite them every week rather than just reciting them on occasion? Uh,
1: Yeah, I I don't recite them every week. Uh, I recite the Apostles' Creed every day. Uh, So it's even more frequent than the detractors would be comfortable with. Um, In the Anglican tradition, uh, the order... Of the daily office, that's morning and evening prayer, it gives you the option of just saying the Apostles' Creed uh, at one of those times, but it's expected that you confess the faith at least once a day. And then on Sundays, we typically uh, confess together the faith as as it is found in the Nicene Creed. So we get the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed at least weekly, and I think that's a good practice. Um, I think it's good because we we actually believe the words. And I think it's good to say them often because we want to keep believing uh, the words. Habits that strengthen and deepen one's faith are healthy habits. Uh, It doesn't lessen the the truth of words um, just because you say them often if you believe them. Like to your children, I love you. And to your wife, I love you. Um, Matter of fact, they would say that it's something of a problem if they didn't hear those words with some regularity. So I scarcely think that uh, one's faith is likely to become stagnant simply because a person reminds himself once too often that he worships God the Father the Almighty, his only Son, our Lord, who is bound together with the Spirit of God, who animates, regenerates, and ultimately raises us from the dead. I don't think that's going to do anything but help him.
0: Amen. Amen. That, that, is, that is helpful in itself. So then as we receive the truth that God has taught us, we are then receiving a form of tradition. I mean, even in the Bible that we have, we are receiving that Bible. It was translated by men who were steeped in a particular tradition. So I'm not saying that our Bible is given by man. That's not what I mean. But we embrace by, by necessity a form of tradition. So what is the role, though, of tradition For us as Protestants.
1: Well, tradition comes from the word uh, tradent, which literally refers to those who pass things along. Uh, So here it might be good to quote the venerable church historian uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, who said Tradition is the living faith of the dead, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, and it is the form of it we appreciate. Oh, it's, it's great. And to my mind, uh, tradition stands on the twin pillars of generosity and gratitude. Uh, those who came before us, the early fathers, the medieval scholastics, the magisterial reformers, and the best and brightest theologians uh, of uh, more recent uh, derivation, they refused to hoard up all of that accumulated wisdom, and they shared it with us. Uh, Thomas Aquinas went so far as to say that although contemplation makes one's life shine, it's better to pass the fruits of contemplation on so that others may shine along with us to the glory of God. So to me, this sounds a lot like what um, the prophet Daniel was speaking about in Daniel 12 when he said, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So the proper response to generosity of this uh, great gift that's been shared with us is gratitude, receiving these things with thanksgiving. But even so, um, it's always helpful to be reminded that tradition is not scripture. So it is not infallible. Men are men wherever men are. And so tradition always has to be tried by the scriptures and regulated by the rule of faith, just as everything else uh, is.
0: That picture of generosity and gratitude, receiving what we've been given over the years is very strong. Because, as a people, we are accustomed just by the the liberal water that we have been drinking for so long. We think that merely, to go back to your Aquinas quote, that me and my Bible and my meditation, I can come to... Because I have the Spirit in me, I can come to all truth that I need with just my own thoughts. And I've even heard people quote that the Apostle John said that you have you don't have a need for any man to teach you. So, you know, this lady said, I don't need a preacher. I don't need anyone because I have God's Spirit. But actually, uh, that itself is animated from a spirit, but it's not the spirit of righteousness. What spirit do you think that is?
1: Uh, I I, I would say that's uh, a spirit of pride uh, more than anything else. When we think about the role of tradition in the life of uh, our own parishes and congregations, it's helpful to remember the words of the wisest man who ever lived and he said two are better than one for they have a good reward for their labor and a threefold cord is not quickly broken and tradition is that uh, is theological engagement carried out across time and space in the communion of the saints and there in that multitude of counselors is where we find our safety. So tradition really becomes something of a guardrail for us. But that's not to say that we won't see things that those who came before us uh, may have missed. But I will say, given our own intellectual and spiritual capacities compared to theirs, it's it's probably unlikely. But it is possible. And if it's possible... It's possible precisely because we have the luxury of standing on their shoulders. Uh, So anytime we think we have found some truth, we need to look down at those who are bearing us up and give them props.
0: And they can, well, I don't know who the first person I, I, I read who said this, but... When we ignore the fathers of the faith who have come before us, when we deny our need for them, in one sense, we are ignoring the work of God's spirit throughout history. We are saying, I don't, you know, the the Holy spirit, what he's done in other people doesn't, doesn't count. Now, of course, The the pushback against that is, well, they're not infallible. And no, they're not. But neither are we infallible. We're really good at believing other people. We're really good at seeing the falsehoods of other people's opinions. Not quite as good at seeing the log that's jutting out of our own eye that when we turn around is going to whop people over the head with it so that's something we have to be aware of and i mean i I, i've told people myself if you hold an opinion that is not or that that has been discredited by the fathers of the church overwhelmingly you need to probably reevaluate that because and again not that we are not, not that we can't see things that they've missed but honestly it's really hard to, to to find something or to come up with some teaching that has not been addressed by our fathers in the faith
1: right and and, and what some of these uh, folks um, need to be reminded of or perhaps told for the first time is, is the creeds the creeds themselves were uh, refined through controversy uh, when the great heretics of the ages came councils met together and they hammered these things out. Uh, the wisest men from across the globe come together, uh, and this was before the church was divided. So we we give that uh, a lot of priority. Um, so, n- recognizing that there's no new heresies under the sun, our fathers have been there before us, and they can help us out a lot in navigating these troubled waters if we would only pay attention to them. As one witch said, uh, a wise man learns from his own mistakes, but it's a true fool who will not learn from the mistakes of others.
0: That's right. Well, when it comes to these men, and what they have handed down to us. Who are some of those in the past who have affected Brandon Meeks the most? Oh,
1: uh, that's a great question. And, and one I, I really never know how to answer because I'm not sure that we know who uh, affects us the most. I know the ones that I return to that I think I've uh, enjoyed the most. Um but i'm sure i've absorbed things and um uh, don't know where i got them but um recently i have noticed that i have i've drawn much from uh, maximus the confessor uh, the cappadocian fathers uh, basil and gregory of Nyssa. um and then moving on further uh, closer to our own own time uh john calvin uh I'm not a Calvinist because um, or, or rather, I'm not a Calvinist despite Calvin. I'm probably a Calvinist uh, because of Calvin. i have I've read the institutes through completely through at least half a dozen times, and I still think it's probably uh, the greatest work of systematic theology that has been given to the church up to this time. It has a, a lyrical quality, a devotional quality, a biblical quality, an ethical quality yes. uh, that has just been unmatched. Uh, so Calvin would be up there and I could, I could name uh, others, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly who has had the most influence.
0: Mm. I, I know that when, when, When I have read Calvin's Institutes, I've always been struck, so before I ever came to them, I was told by others, this is dense, it is hard, it's very technical theology, and that shows you why, not that we should ignore those who who give advice, but it's usually best instead of just reading about what great men have written to actually read what they wrote and he is one of those because I mean even if you can com- contrast his work with other scholastics say someone like Francis Turritton or you know other men who who wrote even at the time, the Institute's are warm and gracious and inviting and pastoral they shepherd you in your beliefs he he's not out to poke holes in everybody else's thought and exalt himself he wants to exalt Christ
1: yes uh, that said, the, uh, classical texts are almost always easier to read uh, than modern texts. I would rather read Plato uh, than anyone who writes about Plato. Plato is much clearer, and this is true with the Fathers. Uh, pick up uh, On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius or Curdeus Homo uh, by uh, St. Anselm. These are extremely clear Theological treatises. Uh, and once again, uh, the Institutes of the Christian Re- Christian Religion by, by Calvin uh, is clear. Just open the first page and tell me you can't understand yeah. exactly what he is getting at. Now accepting the puritans I I will allow I will allow that that they're difficult but that's usually because uh, they never like to use one word of 37 and a half would do.
0: <laughs> yes, well, John, you know, John Owen aside, uh, somebody so so for me my favorite puritan is probably Thomas Watson because he is more down to earth and hitting people where they live. Than you know someone like Owen and and others, and, and that's something I, I know for myself. Reading men who were actually pastors who dealt with people regularly is something that I will read for devotional reading. And Calvin was a pastor; he he wrote as a pastor to his people. Someone. Yes. Like um, uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli, he was writing not for, pa- er, and not as a pastor. He's writing as a theologian to theologians, and that has its place. There's nothing wrong with that. But for j- just pure devotional, you know, something to, to make you love the Lord more. Calvin's wonderful, and it was not my intention to turn this into just a Calvin love fest, but, but, but <laughs> it, it would be easy to do. Though. Brandon, you've written before about preaching, and I read the first article that I read by you was an article about why the Reformed cannot preach. So what would you say are some of the problems of modern reformed preaching and then what should people look for or, or what does good preaching look like?
1: Yeah, it's easier to talk about bad preaching the good preaching because we, uh, recognize so many uh, species of it that we, that grow native uh, around all of us. Um, with, with, uh, A certain type of reformed person, uh, preaching is bad because uh, these guys just don't know what sermons are. Uh, They think that sermons are book reports or theological essays. Um, They forget that there are uh, people sitting in front of them uh, who live rough and dirty lives, uh, who have uh, mothers dying with cancer and children who are wayward and uh, bills to pay and a roast in the oven right now while he's drawing on and on. And I think, I think it was uh, Phillips Brooks who said that it's only a certain type of reform preacher who thinks that hardworking men and women get out of bed on Sunday mornings in order to learn more about the Amalekites. But that's what, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, that's what some of these guys think preaching is. It's just an information dump. Uh, but preaching is really more of a sacramental event wherein God is pleased to meet with his people uh, through the uh, instrument of the proclamation of the word. There is a, a a nearness, an immediacy in the presence of God through preaching. And uh, that uh, is quite different than an essay uh, on the Amalekites. Now, There are other things uh, that I think uh, are missing in in, in a lot of preaching, Um, and I go through those in the book, so I won't belabor them now, but you asked particularly about uh, good preaching. Well, let, let me say it like this. Like the poet said of a tree, only God can make a preacher. Of course, he can labor and study, he can improve his native gifts, he can learn new skills, and baptize every endeavor with sweat and tears. But ultimately, preaching is the work of God. Elijah can prepare his altar, but but God still is the one who sends the fire. But when this happens, it means that preaching really is something of a sacramental uh, event. And the people in the pew Uh, have uh, caught sight of that bush aglow that's not consumed and they turn aside to see the great sight and their minds are enlightened, their affections are inflamed, and their wills are set to action. So fundamentally, I believe that good preaching presents the whole Christ to the whole man. It can't just be an information dump. It can't just be an emotional display. It can't just be a call to action. It has to engage all three faculties. So the faithful preacher aims for the knowledge of God, delight in God, and obedience towards God. To me, that's good preaching.
0: Wow, I cannot say that any better. Myself and, you know, you have and in the book you did. So for anyone who's interested in what makes good preaching, uh, please go and acquire that book. Whenever someone asked me, you know, what is a book like Preacher Friends? What is a book you can recommend to me on that? I've recommended that. I've given that book several to several friends And so I'm very grateful for that. Brandon, we really appreciate you taking time to meet with us. This has been wonderful, uh, a blessing. And uh, so uh, direct people to your pod. I I will direct people to your podcast to listen. Uh, The old time religion really good. I've I've listened to all the episodes so far. So thank you and, uh, and Lord bless you and all your work.
1: Thank you, Matt. It's been a joy.